You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Dr. Donna Shalala has had a distinguished career in academia as the president of Hunter College, chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and most recently, president of the University of Miami. In government, she served with Presidents Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, who nominated her as Secretary for Health and Human Services, where she served for eight years, and was the president of the Clinton Foundation from 2015 to 2017. Now she has decided to seek the Democratic nomination for U.S. Congress for the 27th District that covers the greater Miami area. She joins me now for a closer look. Donna, your Miami Congressional District is considered one of the Democrats' best pickup opportunities this fall. But what will the challenges be to flip this district, no matter who the Democratic nominee is? It's a complex district because it has both the business community, a very heavy um, center in the city of Miami, as well as poor areas, um, particularly poor African-American, Haitian uh, areas uh, in the community. And it's, um, as you would expect in Miami, has a significant Hispanic population. It also is one of the centers of undocumented uh, people. So the people in Miami get up every day and go to work. So there are challenges that are focused on immigration as well as uh, challenges of the environment because, of course, the beaches are included in this area and sea level rise is a huge issue for us. Do you speak Spanish, Donna? I do speak some Spanish, but not enough to campaign in Spanish. But the community... 
uh, is so welcoming. And, of course, I come from a very extended family, Lebanese family, um, and um, the culture that I come from is very consistent with the dominant culture uh, here in Miami, extended families. Um, very family-oriented uh, in our community. But there are a new generation of young people who are Spanish speakers, but they're second and third generation. Many of them went to the University of Miami or went one of the other universities here. So it's a highly educated district in which half the people in the district have college degrees. Now, many of those students are going to be knowledgeable and maybe active in the Me Too movement. Now, having served with Bill Clinton, how are you going to respond to questions about Me Too? Um, uh, without a problem, because uh, if you'll remember, uh, Arthur, when we were in the administration, I was the one cabinet officer that confronted the president um, on, um, on the issue of his behavior. Um, and it actually appeared in the Someone leaked it and it appeared in the front page of the Washington Post. So I have a long record on having zero tolerance on any kind of sexual harassment in every institution I've been in, uh, as well as during the Clinton administration. Speaking of records, during the campaign, there's an issue that will probably come up in terms of the janitor's hunger strike at the university, and you've been criticized for your handling of the issue. Uh, would you like to comment on that? The issue was really um, a debate between whether uh, the contractor for the janitor that provided the janitors for the university, uh, it was not a debate over whether the janitors would unionize, but whether they would use a card check that is signing cards to say they wanted a union versus um, a National Labor Relations Board election. The union wanted the card check. The contractor um, wanted uh, the vote. Um, it was not even as much about money because the salaries had been adjusted over a relatively uh, short period of time. So finally, finally, the contractor uh, agreed that he would take the card checks and the janitors organized. I have a long history with all of the unions, working with unions. I actually, when I lived in New York and um, first taught at the City University of New York, I was a member of the AFT. And I've worked closely with the unions, including the SEIU, over the years. So I think my track record over almost 40 years is... Uh, even more important. And um, the first check I received was a $5 check from a janitor uh, at the university who believed that I had done a very good job um, with the workers there, whether they were contract workers or others. In the light of the activist kids of Parkland, do you feel that your Miami students offer you hope for the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're actually, as this is the new movement. Uh, young people, we forget that the peace movement, the free speech movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, much of it was led by young people, in some cases college students, but with the participation of high school students. 
So moving this country in the right direction, it's not unusual to have young people get out in front on an issue and be really articulate and willing to to take real risks uh, to get things done. I'm very proud of the young people, the Parkland um, high school students, as well as all the students across the country that are sending a very clear message to um, elected officials about um, restricting guns and access to guns, particularly assault weapons. Donna, is the DACA issue personal to you? Um, it's heartbreaking, but it's also heartbreaking about their parents. We've got to make a decision about the 12 million people who already live in this country, most of whom get up every day and go to work and contribute to the quality of life and to the economy and finding a way in which they can work their way towards citizenship is extremely important. We start with the DACA kids, but that's only a, a step one. We've got to worry about the others. Let me tell you a story. When my grandmother, a hundred years ago, came to Ellis Island, she was actually turned away, my Lebanese grandmother. Her mother took her all the way around, and she snuck across the Mexican border. Wow. She was an undocumented immigrant that we didn't find out about um, until my mother was driving her to get her Social Security card. She burst into tears and told my mother the story. So all of us kids and my family, my mother's side of the family lived here in Miami. We flew down to coach her for the exam. She passed the exam, was finally an American citizen, and uh, then she turned to us and said that she thought she'd get a driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> There's a House Republican higher education bill that eliminates the separate definitions of nonprofit and for-profit colleges and federal funding oversight. The Inspector General argues that for-profit colleges present too much of a risk to be treated the same as all other types of schools. What are your thoughts? Well, I have two thoughts on that. Number one, uh, the profit colleges have had a terrible reputation in this country, uh, recruiting uh, young people um, and uh, saddling them with big debt, debt, not giving them quality education. So even though they have a lot more flexibility than the not-for-profits, and the non-profit, not-for-profits have been slow in some ways to respond, um, I I really think that we ought to think hard about this uh, because of the record and because of the debt load that they have um, and, and the default rate and the lack of graduation rates in the for-profit colleges. The other thing, Arthur, is one of the questions we ought to ask is what is the role of government in investing in for-profit companies? Um, whether uh, it's a, a corporation, a bailout of a corporation for a short period of time, or whether government ought to subsidize for-profit companies and uh, versus uh, the nonprofits. And my argument has always been that um, the government doesn't necessarily have a responsibility unless we think it through. Just because it's an educational institution doesn't mean the government funds ought to automatically be used. Um, if we really believe that government ought to fill a role that the for-profit sector can't fill on its own, then you would justify that investment. But I don't think that's true in education. We have plenty of educational institutions in this country 
that are not-for-profit that can absorb the student wherever they live. Do you think that there is something specific we should be doing for uh, Puerto Rican students? You have a large number of Puerto Ricans in the district you yeah. want to represent. Yes, and... and um, uh, Puerto Ricans have moved here to Miami, mostly to Tampa and Orlando, where there are larger uh, uh, communities. And we, they are Americans, and we have taken responsibility to find ways in which they can complete their education. My hope is that they will eventually be able to return to the universities in Puerto Rico as well. Um, during um, a terrible hurricane that we had a number of years ago. The students from New Orleans went all over the United States, the college students, to universities. When they came to Miami, we said to them, look, we'll give you free tuition while you're here, but only if you return to your home institution. And my hope is that Puerto Rico will be rebuilt and that the universities, um, that students will return to the very good uh, Puerto Rican universities eventually. Meanwhile, we do feel a responsibility, all of us, to make sure they're able to continue their education. Now, universities have certainly embraced technology, but is the way we teach changing very much, and will technology ever radically change the campus college experience? You know, that's a very interesting question. I think it already has. I think online education for a group of students that are, um, that are older, that have to combine that with a full-time job, um, technology has done that. I personally don't think there's a substitute for having a professor in the room. Now, I teach 200 students, but I use Skype. Uh, to bring in experts to talk to my class. I use film. I talk to my students uh, through social media. They ask me questions through different kinds of social media sites. So all of us are incorporating technology, our ability to have the students see short films um, as homework assignments, uh, to interact with us. In fact, shy students tend to love the technology as a way of asking their professors questions. So the classroom itself, the smart classrooms, have changed the way that we teach. Uh, and in my class in particular, because I'm teaching the politics and economics of healthcare, I can bring in experts to talk to my students that don't have to get on a plane and fly down here to Miami. But for the vast majority of students in this country who are adult students, technology has given them an alternative, though we'd love to make sure that most of them at least have the classroom experience as an integrated part of that. Donna, as I read the very impressive credentials and think about my experience with you through the years, dating back to the New York State Constitutional Convention, I have to ask myself the question, why? With everything you've done, why do you want to go through the angst of fundraising and a campaign and then to join the Congress as a backbencher with very little influence, certainly at the outset? Well, um... I love my country, Arthur, and I'm not finished. And I happen to believe that we ought to send people that have had experience uh, to Washington, not simply experience as elected officials, 
but experience running institutions, running companies who have made hard decisions during the course of their lives and who understand the issues, um, the complexity of the issues and the complexity of putting together coalitions to get things done. Um, I can assure you I will not be a backbencher and I won't be a rookie. Uh, in Washington, uh, because I've had enough experience in Washington, though most of my experience has been running large, complex institutions. I've had enough experience to know how to navigate through a very partisan world down there. Can I get some things done? I think I can, because I think I've already demonstrated in every job I've ever had that I got things done. I like to describe myself as a pragmatic progressive, and that is I just want to get things done. In this case, for the people of of Miami, and I have some ideas about what we can do to improve health care in this country, particularly the affordability of health care, but as well as uh, some things that we need to do on the economy. We did a tax cut. You know, many of us believe it wasn't necessary because the economy actually was in pretty good shape, and it didn't really focus on a lot of people to get up every day and go to work who look at those payroll taxes, and that's what's burdening them. So looking at the affordability of health care, helping uh, hardworking folks to get their fair share of uh, the dollars that are, are sitting in Washington, I think is very important. And of course, only the federal government can do big investments in the climate issues, in the environmental issues um, that face us uh, every day. And frankly, we've got to look hard at the federal role in higher education. Do you still have contacts in Iran from your Peace Corps days? Well, most of my contacts are people that have left Iran now because so many of the students that I taught years ago um, in the Peace Corps eventually emigrated um, to the United States or to Europe or to other countries. But every once in a while, I'll run into someone um, who still lives in Iran, or I'll get a message from someone uh, describing to me the situation in Iran. It is a country led by people who fund terrorism. Um, It's a difficult situation. Um, I do support the deal that President Obama uh, cut as a step in delaying the development of, of nuclear power and of weapons in Iran, but it, it it's a complex political situation, and I don't trust at all the leadership of Iran to fulfill that pledge unless everybody in the world is watching them very carefully. Turning to health care, you were the Secretary of Health and Human Services under Clinton. Why couldn't you get a health care reform bill done? And did that teach you Anything about that experience that you might have done differently? It did. An experience we should have learned from history. Until you get consensus in the country that there is a role of government in filling in the gaps, much like Lyndon Johnson did on Medicare, for example, there, there wasn't a private sector that wanted to take care of seniors or the disabled or the poor. And so that was a clear government role. When President um, Clinton tried to reform a larger part of the health care system that would have impacted everyone that had health insurance, it was just very difficult to build a political coalition or even to explain that level of complexity. And we made some political mistakes. We designed it in the White House in secret for the most part with limited participation by Congress. 
President Obama and President Bush, to his credit, when he put in the drug part of the Medicare program, they worked very carefully with Congress to draft the bill. But even then, it was difficult. It was difficult for President Bush. It was difficult uh, for President uh, Obama. But in each case, they were filling a gap that the private sector really didn't want to take responsibility for. If you think about Obamacare, it's really for working folks who didn't have access to health care through their employer or in which that health care was too expensive. And so subsidizing them so that the rest of us wouldn't end up paying for their health care when they walked into an emergency room, so that they didn't end up cost-shifting to those of us that had health insurance, turned out to be exactly the focus that uh, required a role for the federal government. Donna, it's reported that Teddy Kennedy said he wished he had signed on for the Nixon plan for health care. Yeah. Why did he say that, and what was the Nixon plan? Yeah, you know, he, um, he said it to me, actually, and I said it to others. Um, the Nixon plan was actually very much like Obamacare. Uh, gave more flexibility to the states in terms of um, Medicaid, was closer to a block grants, and gave the states uh, a lot more flexibility in delivering and designing that program. But basically, it was very much like Obamacare, which reminds us that the concept of Obamacare actually was a Republican concept. And what Teddy said to me was um, he was just – he said he was too arrogant at the time. He thought we could do better than that plan. And Nixon had a terrible time putting together the politics for it. And um, um, – Senator Kennedy regretted that all of his life because we would have, at this time, had universal health care because we would have added incrementally to it and we would have had everybody covered, as opposed to the situation we have now in which those states that haven't adopted the extension of Medicaid have left out a lot of working, uh, the working poor People who work part-time jobs or two part-time jobs get minimum wage, and and because their states haven't extended Medicaid, um, they can't get health care coverage. Now, during your time at HHS, you took on the tobacco companies. Do you think there are any lessons here for solving the opioid epidemic? Probably not. And let me tell you why. The opiate epidemic was man-made in this sense. The pain doctors in the United States, concerned about the pain that their patients were suffering, um, set standards of care that involved the use of opiates. So it actually, it's, it's a classic, the unintended consequences of good public policy. What they were trying to do was alleviate people's pain. What they ended up doing, and then others taking advantage of the good work they were trying to do, um, is they got uh, large numbers of people addicted. Many of us who have had major operations, I had one on my shoulder, I recently had some gum surgery, um, have had the experience of our doctors giving us opiates. And if we're not careful with them, uh, we can get addicted. Um, so it started out with good doctors trying to good, do good things for their patients. And uh, because opiates, we started to squeeze down on them and they became expensive, people switched to heroin. So um, I don't think 
saying that the drug companies alone are the bad guys here or the doctors are the bad guys. We simply have to make huge investments now in treatment, in drug control, and in new standards as the American Medical Association and the professional societies are doing now on who gets these drugs and how long they're, um, they can take them or whether there are alter- alternative drugs, pain-reducing drugs, and uh, alternative strategies that we can use so people don't get addicted. So I do see it somewhat differently. In the case of tobacco, we were specifically focused on the fact that tobacco companies were recruiting children. That's how they were expanding their population. If they could get kids hooked before they were 18, they would be smokers forever. So our strategy was, first, we caught them doing that. Second, our strategy was to reduce the number of kids that started smoking in the first place. And we did that in a number of ways with the help of state and local governments that literally banned the selling of cigarettes near schools, we uh, convinced stores to put the cigarettes uh, uh, in a in a place where it would be difficult to access them, and and they started to card check uh, kids so that no one uh, under 21 could buy cigarettes. So it was a multifaceted public health strategy, but simultaneously the tobacco companies were turned into the bad guys because they were clearly marketing to children. The American people will tolerate a lot of things, but getting kids addicted to cigarettes was not something they were willing to tolerate. Uh, tobacco is a legal product, and but all the campaigns to talk about cancer and, and tobacco were never as effective as our campaign to reduce the number of children uh, that started to smoke. And that's had a major impact on this country in terms of public health. It's one of the great public health successes of uh, the last century. Yes, it certainly is. Now, you've worked in the federal government, and the current administration seems to be cutting back on many agencies. I've often thought that there comes a time when you do have to think about whether rules and regulations that were put in place 15 years ago have the same relevance as they do today. Isn't it possible that there are too many people in government and duplicating agencies? Um, sure, and, um, and everybody agrees with that, but you have to do it with a scalpel. You don't cut food stamps to poor people. Um, sure, there are regulations, and that's in large part, my experience has been in the healthcare arena. Every time we had a problem or a scandal, Congress decided that we should add a new regulation or a new law, which made the programs themselves so complex that, frankly, it was easy for people that want organized crime in particular to take a hold of those programs and make a lot of money. So fraud, from my point of view, is directly related to the complexity of the programs. And we started that cycle ourselves. She's had more than 40 years of experience as an accomplished scholar, teacher, and administrator. She served with Presidents Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. She was the president of the University of Miami, and now she's decided to run for the U.S. congressional seat in Florida, District 27, which includes the Miami area. Dr. Donna Shalala, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have 
comments about the program or suggestions for topics, email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.